So what are some misconceptions about product managers? Oh, okay. So I think there's a big one that the product manager doesn't do anything. Now, I think that's... (laughs) (laughs) Is it true? (laughs) Well, I think it's yes and no. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Peter Knudsen. He's a product manager of 10 years who focuses on innovative new experiences that help drive engagement in the ever-evolving landscape of mobile and console games. He's also the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Product Sense. He lives in San Francisco. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. As a data scientist, I gradually noticed that whether we're building a model or creating a dashboard, essentially we're all product managers uh, creating a data product to help our users make better decisions. So I also noticed a lot of companies have product science questions during uh, when they interview data science candidates. So I'm very excited today to learn more about product science from you to see how we can develop this skill to be better data scientists. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's, uh, I can't wait to get started. Let's start from your uh, career. You have a degree in economics from Harvard. I see a lot of econ students later on become data scientists. So what got you into product management? I got into product management uh, when I was my, after my junior year of college. Uh, what I was looking at was I wanted to get into tech. I think that there were a lot of people when I was an undergrad, a lot of people with economics degrees would go into finance or consulting work. And I wanted to see what other opportunities studying economics could really open up. And what, what drew me was an internship to a company called Zynga. Now, Zynga had, at the time, the, the, the inter- internship I had there was Farmville, which was a game that where people would basically grow or maintain a virtual farm and that they would interact with their friends from Facebook in order to grow it at like a better rate or be able to just have a nicer farm and maybe harvest more wheat if they were able to get their help from their friends. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot what the tie-in from economics from that point of view was this idea of a virtual economy. So that if your virtual items create a marketplace when you're comparing it to another person's item. So maybe we have to think about how um, how I'd want to trade with you. And then even as a game designer, product manager at Zynga, you are constantly thinking about what we call game balancing, which is that everything is assigned an item. This this is how much wheat is produced from this one little plot of, I guess, dirt or something like that. And that over time, as people progress, there's more and more complex systems in play. And as a game designer, product manager, you're kind of one and the same in that in that sense. And trying to keep the game fun and engaging throughout maybe the first week of somebody's playing the game through multiple years, there's a lot of modeling that goes into that. Because we can, you, know, you can't play test a game by playing it for 10 years, you have to use you know, math and models to kind of figure out how far people are going to make it after three months in order to keep the game easy, but also to keep it not uh, too easy where people will you know, kind of play too much and be able to get through the game super fast. So it was an interesting crossover from what I was learning in school to the real world. And I think it really took my passions for gaming as well as applied it to the stuff I was studying at school. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your background in economics really give you an edge in your PM work. Well, I think so. But the interesting thing about product managers, they do come from a lot of different backgrounds. Plenty of people have CS degrees. I know one of the best 
uh, product managers I ever worked with uh, didn't have any college degree. So I think like there are so many aspects of being a PM and so many ways to sort of specialize within the field that economics helped me, especially since I've been focused, focused so much on games. But I think really a successful PM can come from a lot of different backgrounds. Yeah. So you just wrote a book about product science. Can you tell us on a high level, what is product science and why data scientists should have product science? Product science is an interesting term that we, it first appeared on the internet from an essay from Ken Norton. He was one of the first, I guess, product thinkers in the space. Maybe 10 years ago, he wrote this article and it was about how to hire a product manager. And he lists a bunch of attributes. And one of the last ones was called product spidey sense is how he called it in the article, which was, and he was assuming that you either have this or you, you don't. It's your intuition about a product, how it was built, why it's built a certain way, what are the problems that the product is trying to solve. Because ultimately any product, anything you buy on Amazon, anything you use digitally is ultimately trying to solve a specific problem. Uh, you're using it and purchasing it because you have a problem that needs to be solved. And so an intuition behind those types of things when you're thinking about products in a conceptual sense is what he called product spidey sense and which is now evolved to um, what what product sense is known today. If you go into interviews at pretty much any of the big tech companies, they'll explicitly ask you it's what we called a product sense question, which is basically testing that intuition that you have. Um, both from a kind of dissecting a user experience point of view to also just generally thinking about um, just products at a really high level. And uh, for data scientists, why is this intuition important? And can we develop this? <laughs> and definitely. And I think, so everybody has product sense and everybody can tune it. One of the things that Ken Norton wrote in his book or article, I guess, online was that he assumed that or was making the assumption that you can't you can't train it, and definitely one of the things we wanted to talk about in product sense was that you everybody has it and you can you can definitely train it. For data scientists, I think I mean anybody who's involved with product development in any way has product sense and are the the good ones do anyway, and everybody can develop it. So engineers, the best ones that you know we've I've ever worked with, really know products as well, and they can real they can determine what whether the work, like when they're in the middle of development, know, making really good decisions based on what's best for the customer. For data scientists, they fit in to, I guess, the product development pod just as much as anybody else. And when you're building a product, even for a data product, thinking about who's the end user, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? These are the same questions that product managers think about, but data scientists are coming at it from a different angle. We all want our things to be useful and to solve a specific problem or have a, an, a, you know, an outcome that we're happy with. And I, I think if you can use structured thinking in order to kind of uncover what those problems are, even no matter what discipline you are, then you're in a good place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you made a great point um, because sometimes data scientists, including myself, we are very excited about building models and we don't really think about who is going to use our model. And Sometimes we end up building a solution that nobody uses, which is very frustrating for us. So how can data scientists help pro use product science to construct our projects better from the beginning to the end? I guess it, you know, it kind of comes down to a little bit about product by product basis. But I think one of the things that I've learned is that you can't do things in isolation. So if a product manager 
is is trying to develop a, an idea and I, i've seen this happen before at work where a, a pm will go and build a go and do a document and write down what he or, he or she is wanting to build and, and not validating with an engineer about, well, whether this is like, you know, a big feature or a small feature, it's, it's just like, Hey, I've come up with this solution. Please go build it. I think you can see the same thing with engineers where they would potentially go off and start playing around with a new technology and, and not really, you know, kind of go heads down and, and really understand it and maybe spend a lot more time than they needed to in order to kind of come up with an, another outcome. I think the same thing can happen uh, from a data science perspective where maybe we want to develop a really, really large model and, and have a lot of interesting kind of technology or ideas co come out of it. But in the end of the day, I think like we're all jumping to solutions. So that's a, that's a really common thing that happens no matter like who you are. And if, you know, you take a step step, at the beginning to identify what you're trying to achieve and what does that achieve achievement look like? What does success look like in defining that? When you're in product management interviews, that's like the number one thing they're looking for is can you stop at the front of the start of the question mm -hmm. or the problem that you're facing? And can you clearly define what success looks like? And if you don't do that, you'll fail your product management interview. And I think if you're on the job, you if you don't do that, you're gonna be building the wrong thing. So no matter like, Everybody, product managers aren't special. There's nothing super unique about them. I think it's just that's a good PM is somebody who just takes that time to really structure everything in a way. And you're amplifying the efforts of everybody else on the team who's actually doing the work. And you're there to create, um, help like amplify those efforts. And that's what being a good PM is about is really just structuring the work of everybody else in a way that gets everybody more motivated and you end up building the right thing. In the book, we talk about this framework for product management and like the, we boil it down to like a product manager's job is to determine what should we build and why and that why being the most important step in that whole equation. Mm -hmm. And I love that you mentioned ask what does success look like and sometimes when we try to solve the problem it's very vague. So what, what, do, what should you do if you don't know what exactly does success look like while you starting to solve the problem yeah i don't think that's a really i mean that's it's easy also to just kind of assign like one metric and say that's what success looks like i've seen people say oh yeah we want to drive i was working at a company i only last there for a couple of weeks um and when i got in there i i understood uh one of the things that the team was doing was it felt like a semi-arbitrary metric that they wanted to increase which was average time watched on these videos and everything was in service of, of this one metric they're running experiments it's like oh if this if the time spent in on these videos went up everything is great but it didn't take into account the customer at all so what does the customer want to spend more time watching videos what if they learned something in less time like wouldn't that be better for them like what if they learned the right amount of information as opposed to just more of it and so that's a, that's a mistake that people can make really easily getting so f fixated on a single metric but in the same at the same time i think it's a really important exercise to figure out what's the right metric to focus on i mean you you definitely want to have something that is measuring success but you want to you want to make sure that it's mapped to the outcome that you want to drive so thinking about at the top level like not just starting with a metric but starting with an like a customer experience you want to unlock or some 
or like what is what is the problem that you're trying to solve for the user and that and that in like a qualitative qualitative sense then you can have discussions with engineers data scientists whoever about how do you actually measure that outcome and, and maybe it's one metric maybe it's a few but you you need to be able to tell the story or be able to measure your experiments once once you have def, um once you have defined that outcome mm-hmm. And I like that you need to think about uh, why you're doing that instead of just fix it on one metric. And sometimes when we build a data science solution or a product, things change. Uh, maybe our understanding about our customer change. So uh, do you ever change your North Star metric? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, it, you know, in theory, it probably shouldn't change too much. Right. Um, I think even though you definitely need to be agile, it's important for the North Star metric to be tied to this broader vision of the company. I don't know for Amazon what it might be, but um, I assume that maybe at the top they're saying this is what we're trying to achieve. And if that changes so many times, like the actual the actual vision, then in theory you're probably pivoting too fast. So while strategies are good to have, you should be able to adapt to new market conditions and new learnings from the customer, but at the very highest level, strategy shouldn't change too many times. But on the individual feature level, which is what a lot of PMs are working on, like you run an experiment, you learn about the customer more, and then you adapt. I think that's the right man- mindset. Yeah. Um, and data scientists and product managers, we collaborate a lot. And as a data scientist, sometimes I'm frustrated when product managers want to launch a feature that performs poorly on in A-B tests. And sometimes they want us to help them cherry pick another yeah. metric that looks better um, so they can put in a report and launch the feature. Honestly, I don't think they want to make bad decisions. I believe they are biased towards launching because they have worked on a feature for so long, they become attached to it. And maybe it's also related to their performance review. So when data scientists face this situation, what is the best way for us to communicate and work with product managers to remove this bias? Yeah, I see I see this a lot. It happens so much. In, and as a PM, like you're, you get so tied to your feature, it's like your baby. And even though you're not supposed to be, I mean, the as a PM, you know, what I care about, what, other, you know, what PM, what they say PMs are supposed to care about is that does your problem get solved? Not necessarily did this feature ship because you're putting the cart before the horse there where there, you know, if you if it's if you're trying to get to point B, um, there might be a faster way than just going directly there. Maybe there's a huge mountain in the way and you can just go around it. But some if you're if you're just focused on the specific solution, you're thinking about it the wrong way. So that happens a lot. I, I've seen it happen in basically every company that I've been in. And it's hard, like even for myself, it's so easy to get like bogged down into just saying, once you really, you really want this thing to be, get done because you put so much work into it. And as a PM, you're always like trying to remove any of the blockers. So when it comes down to decide whether or not to kill the feature, of course, you're going to feel sad about yeah. that. I guess as a data scientist or, or pretty much anyone, I think if anything that pulls PMs together is is data and and getting getting people aligned, especially at the leadership level. If you can prove it quantitatively, no one can no one's really going to argue with you. So I think if if we're trying to make a decision about changing something or or changing course, like having as much ammunition that tells a story about what the customer actually thinks, is is going to go a long way in, in in 
you know, kind of persuading people, especially PMs who love metrics. Mm -hmm. So basically work with the PM to show them what do customers really want. Yeah, if we if we can think that and that's the ultimate goal. Um, and I think, you know, taking a step back and and really focusing, go going back to the goal. It's like, OK, our goal is to unlock this specific outcome like, you know, this feature, like if based on these set data points, like we're saying we're seeing that it, our outcome isn't being driven, but it could be another there could be another way to do it mm -hmm. yeah i like that so basically you're finding the finding the common ground on the higher level yeah. achieving the goal exactly. um you mentioned it's painful when you have to kill a feature um have you ever had those experience hmm, let me think yeah well i it's definitely like a pm when they have like their resume is full of like launched features and shipping stuff and so when you have to kill something it's really sad i definitely you know, I, there was a point in, there was a feature that I worked on at my last company and it was supposed to be really like, you know, I wasn't the only PM on it, but I was part of the team and it was a feature that was uh, supposed to be like the new revenue stream for the company. And we were going to, uh, it was going to really help the, all these customers. But what we had to do, we, what we broke, we broke every PM rule in the book. The first thing that we did was we tried to go really, really fast without figure talking to the customers. I think we, 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 you know, us and the leadership decided to align on like this cool new product we were going to ship without really doing our due diligence on determining if anyone's actually going to use it. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was that we started to building really fast on and on top of addition, uh, you know, tech that had already existed that wasn't supposed to be used for really anything else. And, and that ended up costing lots and lots of months of dev time. And we had to really work with a lot of other teams instead of building something from zero to one that maybe we were in control of our destiny. So it came down to the point where uh, we were about to ship and sell the product and uh, customers, well, they didn't want to use it for one because they, it was missing functionality. Maybe a competitor had slightly more features in it or um, for whatever reason, it just didn't fit their need. Thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned you were breaking all the PM rules of the book. So what are the typical best practices for product managers? Sure. And that best practices is a word that you hear so much in the world of tech. And there's definitely a million of them for product management since you have to do a million different things. And it'll a struggle with not making them super high level, but I think to make you know universally applicable rules is generally it's it ends up being a good thing i think that for pms I'll, I'll just say a couple of them i'd say one is like like we talked about before is is clearly defining the goals at the beginning of any project and doing so collaboratively i think because no, nobody likes kind of top-down direction and so i guess as part of this whole point being like Let's establish the goal and the vision, but let's make sure that everybody is aligned at the same time. And that's that's really one of the benefits benefits of uh, stating a vision and getting everybody bought in to the highest level because now everybody's aligned, and then you can take the next step and maybe define out some solutions after after you do that. The second, but before you get to solutions, I guess number two best uh, practice would be really understanding the customer really well. I think this is something that new product managers can do right 
on the ground hit when they hit the ground running at a new company is talk to customers or understand the competitive landscape and what problems those companies are solving because you can never even if you're really new you can certainly just get on a call with the customer and or go or go look through some data and see how people are behaving and then use that to formulate any hypotheses about what you know why they're using things or what are some underserved opportunities things like that so knowing the customer is obviously very important for anybody to know and then i think that the third one would be being adaptable uh is is something like being if you're very rigid you're going to end up in the in this state where you're working on that feature like i was just telling you about where you're never going to change course because you're so kind of got your blinders on so just being adaptable and agile is really important Mm -hmm. and based on those um best practices you mentioned uh, what are some frustration you had when you work with data scientists (laughs) that's yeah that's a good question um and i'm sure data scientists have a million frustrations we're working with pms <laughs> it's not uncommon to hear people hate pms <laughs> especially i've heard that from data scientists a lot too i think that sometimes it can be very it can be frustrating when pms are really trying to just get something done really fast and bugging you all the time or cutting corners stuff that pms sometimes do so that can be frustrating i think with data scientists as a pm what people we we like when things don't take very long to do, and especially when we don't understand the complexities that go into it. So maybe if you're a junior PM, the concept of making a model, it doesn't, we have no idea how long that will take. I'll tell you right now, it, I have no idea. We don't know what goes into that, right. right? And so it can be, it's hard to call, like with an engineer, it's easy to kind of call bullshit after a while because you get to learn the tech stack and what kind of, and the PMs are generally pretty, reasonably technical after a while, especially with their particular product team. And so you can say, oh yeah, this button color change from red to green is not gonna take two weeks. But with the data scientist, you you can't call bullshit no matter what. You're like, it, it can take, it's gonna take as long as it's gonna need to take. And that's, that's important. It's, I guess what would be good, I think, for a PM and a data scientist to kind of align on the size of the complexity of a task ahead of time so that those types of frustrations don't end up like causing problems down the line. Mm-hmm. I think that might be one. Yeah. So I know you have more, so I'm just trying to understand. You're saying, for example, if I want to build a model to solve a problem you requested, I can let you know in advance how long it would take, what goes into it to develop that trust instead of, hey, I'm data scientist, you're the PM, I'm not going to tell what I'm going to do, and you have to take the whatever the time it required to wait, right? Yeah, and I think also going along with that is maybe if both parties can mutually really talk about what we're trying to achieve with that, because it can be really easy to blow up the complexity of any project. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll compare to engineering again, where you know an engineer wants to use the most latest up-to-date stack, which is going to require a rewrite of all the stuff before or something like that, and all to do one particular thing. So I think if everybody's focused on, you know, return on investment in terms of time, as well as really focused on the customer, because we're all doing this because we want the customer to have a better experience or to be able to solve whatever issue they're having or, or achieve this outcome for them. And adding unnecessary stuff to it, it's going to be, it might not be in service of that goal. So being, you know, having the PM 
if the PM can really clearly outline what we're trying to achieve, I think it makes the job easier for everybody. And then that uh, might help guide data science to maybe make the right model rather than an overly complex one. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those things where uh, having shared, I hate to use this one, but empathy for what the other person is trying to do, because it's very easy to, I think there's a good, good, a good analogy of like another really contentious relationship that happens at work is like sales and product because the product like sales team, maybe if you're working at a SaaS company, there's sales folks that are going out to the customer trying to make deals. And then a customer says, Oh, like if you add this one feature, then we're going to give you this $2 million contract, which of course is like this big deal. Uh, so the sales staff really wants to get that feature done. Right. But then the product manager has got all these other things they're working on, or maybe they need like an in-flight project needs to ship. So it's, it's saying no sometimes, and that can cause like problems. I've seen that happen definitely at organizations that I've been a part at where sales and product really just don't get along. And I think that same thing can kind of happen with any discipline, especially data science. Um, and so if an empathy about what, each person is trying to do why why you know why are they um like what are their responsibilities like what 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 are their concerns and like what would keep them up at night and then really being intentional about understanding what those are for each other will will help you have more productive conversations in the workplace and not it sounds really wishy-washy and soft skills but honestly like that's the the further i get in product management and i've been in product management for like 10 years now mm. this is way way more about human skills and soft skills yeah. than anything else because you you need to be able to well in order for a product to ship everyone needs to be firing in all cylinders and if people are mad at each other it's not going to work out yeah. so finding your way around navigating your way around that is is part of the job mm -hmm. yeah i think it's very important that you mentioned empathy because when i just started working with pms I didn't quite get what they do, and honestly, I didn't like them. I just feel <laughs> they write a lot of documents, yeah. they schedule a lot of meetings, and I dreaded those meetings. So, of course, now I have more understanding and empathy for PMs. Um, so what are some misconceptions about product managers? Yeah, oh, that's. I'm sorry that you've dealt with that. It, it's <laughs> it's definitely meeting overload for PMs. Yeah. And I, I think like a lot of, especially in the Zoom age, like you a meeting can should only take five minutes most likely like if you have a decision you got to make it shouldn't it should just be fast and then like the first seven minutes is always like waiting for people to show up or just chatting about shit so that uh i can definitely feel why it would be annoying to to have a pm that schedules a bunch of meetings um i'm sorry i got on a tangent what was the question again <laughs> <laughs> now that we talked about meetings <laughs> The question was, what are some oh, misconceptions right. about product managers? Right, right. Oh, okay. So I think there's a big one that the product manager doesn't do anything. Now, I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> well, I think it's yes and no, because an organization can survive without a PM, right? Like if you take away the, subtract the PM, there's still engineers, designers, data scientists, and sales to ship stuff. But then as like a PM exists because an organization is like inherently complex yeah. and that the PMs add a little bit of structure to it. So that's, you know, like we were saying before, the goal setting, the customer research and problem solving type of stuff uh, needs a full time person doing it. And it can be, you know, a good a, 
a normal PM or a bad PM can be a detractor and, and cause like negative externalities and missed deadlines and stuff. But a good PM can 10x the effort of everybody else. So that's why, like, and also, like we said before, any PMs can come from any background. So it's finding a really great PM can just do a ton for the business. And so I think not doing anything, it can be true because you can take the PM away from it. But I think the best organizations have really strong PMs. If you look at definitely one of those ones, it's really hard to hire for. But if you get a good team going, then I think everybody's firing a lot, you know, a lot better. So... What is product manager's biggest challenge when you try to make data-driven decisions? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, from my experience, uh, I'm curious to know what have you know what your experiences yeah. too. <laughs> but the it's easy to pay attention to the wrong data. I think I see a lot of like we I think we were talking about that earlier, where you get fixated on uh, on the wrong metric, and I think that's. Definitely easy to do. I think also overusing experimentation is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like if every experiment you add to a product, it, it feels kind of lazy sometimes where if you're like, oh, I don't know the answer to this question, we'll just throw an A-B test. A-B tests, well, aren't free to develop. They cost, they cost time and to read out yeah. to do stuff with that. And then you add a million data experiments to a product and are you really even going to analyze them now you're, it kind of makes your statistical analysis even harder. And then in some instances for SaaS products, and like you, you just can't run experiments. And so right. if you throw an experiment in there, you might you might not even be able to read it out in an effective way. I think that's a that's a that's a way that I think when PM started, experiments were like really really hot. And now, yeah, I think it's you know they're a tool that you can use, but they're not the end all be all. Mm-hmm. And. You mentioned there are some situations when you cannot use data to make decisions. And as a data science, I agree with that, especially when you are building something innovative, say you're building the next iPhone, there's no data for you to make the decision. So how do you decide how much time and resource you invest in a greenfield project when there's no data? Yeah, good question. There's a lot of, of theory about this and there's a lot of good books but I think a couple things took me. Are, are you familiar with the concept minimum lovable product? Um, yeah, but I would like to like you to explain more to our audience. Sure. So in agile or whatever lean startup world, they, they talk a lot about minimum viable product, which is like the bare minimum feature set that you need to test a hypothesis for something. So like if you can subtract away all the fat, but what people think about now is more what we call minimum minimum lovable product. So it, it, the, the bar is high now for technology products, especially even like web destinations and having an experience that not only solves the problem, but also kind of makes the user feel delighted when they use it or something yeah. that makes them fall in love with it. That's that's kind of the, where the bar is now. So that minimum lovable product, I think, is called like it's just table stakes. Ta- stable takes is a PM where table stakes is a PM word that means like they're just required. Like you don't have to prove that your website needs a navigation bar, right? There's no data that you need to pull to, sh- to show that that's required. So your minimum lovable product, those are things that based on what you see in the industry or what is kind of the most common pattern or uh, list of features that are required to even compete in a specific new area, that's a decision that you can use product sense for understanding why those were included and why they're important for the customer to love your product. 
when you don't have so that's a good example of not having of using data and then really anything about um qualitative is pieces of data now i know that might be cheating but if you don't have big swaths of metrics if you're pre-launch but you can still talk to prospective customers and draw trends from what they're saying and so what you know data is a tool to find out what customers are doing and also talking to them and running surveys and analyzing the industry about what other products are doing they're all in the realm of understanding the purpose and goals of specific products mm -hmm. Yeah, um, as a data scientist, I have to make a confession that when I started my career, I believe that if your A-B testing is not significant, um, then you should never launch the product. But later on, I noticed there are a lot of other things where you can use, for example, focus group, you can mm -hmm. understand your customer. And sometimes you also need to take calculated risks. Yeah. And if you only um, make a product decision when you're 100% certain, maybe that's too late. Yeah. Um, so as a product manager, how do you take those calculated risks? Yeah, I think it was Jeff Bezos or something was saying that if 70, he's, if he's 70% sure of something, then yeah. he's in a good spot. I think that's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, I also have experience where at the beginning of my career, when you were launching a feature, you just jam a bunch of A-B tests in there for just for good measure or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but it's important to take those risks, like you're saying. And part of the job is that intuition that you develop over time about, oh, yeah, I can predict how, you know, I have a pretty good intuition about how customers might behave on that, behave on this. Like you, you get an eye of like um, spotting when a UX is just bad, like, oh, OK, like this button is hidden, it's the wrong color, it's red when it's supposed to be green. And there's patterns that you see across the internet that you yourself are a user, and then you can apply those learnings to also to your own products. Mm -hmm. So, you know, using your best judgment and I think validating it with your team, if you everybody's aligned on the risk that you're taking, I think that's a lot of the times a really good spot to be in. Yeah. And uh, to data scientists who are not comfortable with taking those type of risks or using qualitative studies, what do you want to tell them? That's a tough one. Yeah. And I, I think that it's, you know, it's data. It's just a different type of data that requires a specific way of interpreting it. Mm -hmm. And I, I've definitely seen methodologies of taking those, you know, focus group and applying data science to it. If you can kind of score different types of, you know, structure the inputs in a way that can be you know analyzed but you know we're always using data whether it's easy to run a query against or if it's not and i think it's just the right tool for the right job is the important bit yeah and now with more and more analytics tools um do you think in the future product managers still need data scientists to do their work oh interesting point you know it's actually i think i feel like it's gone the opposite direction <laughs> yeah so I, I studied uh behavioral economics okay. so kind of the intersection of psychology and economics and we would I, you know my senior year i worked in a lab basically and that was to our previous conversation about taking qualitative data and trying to make it structured that was one of the things we would do which would be and this is going on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's interesting. So we would, we would you know, if we wanted to do a, a, an experiment, say we wanted to prime people to be sad, 
and then see how much they would be willing to trade this, you know, this mug, like how much did you value it? Stuff, stuff like that mm -hmm. to see what people's pricing decisions changed based off of their mood. And so we'd hook people up with these, like, I don't know, electrodes to measure their like heart rate. There's ways to tell if someone's sad based on their body mechanics and physiology and stuff. So we would score and be get a structured way of getting that data and then applying it to, you know, the result. And so then we'd use these crazy, you know, ways of analyzing that data. And it's been a long time and I don't remember where they are and I'm sure there's new ones now. But, and so getting into PM the first time, there was actually a lot, like I used a lot of those skills, uh, you know, SPSS or whatever it was called, mm -hmm. Stata. And, yeah. and really taking this huge amount of data, it was at Zynga and they had tons of people, tons of users, tons of data points. And so I had to have those skills to be able to, to do my job. Nowadays, I think product managers have specialized to the point where, uh, and product orgs will always, you know, always have a, a business analyst. I think they'll have, there'll be data scientists, the team, as well as analysts, as well as finance people who, who are there to, you know, be specialized in, in finding that information. And then having PMs, I guess, specializing in trying and trying to find out what those questions are, what are the problems we're solving and working collaboratively in stakeholder management to get the, the thing executed and the analysis done uh, in the right way, rather than the PM doing everything. Cause I think, you know, as a PM, I wouldn't trust myself to be able to, well, one, write the right jury and two, um, even be able to know how to ask it. Cause I think that's, that's why you have teammates on the team that are good at asking those questions and figuring out the answer at the same time so that we can work as a team to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're saying maybe in some, um, smaller companies or startups, when data scientists have a lot of product science, maybe they can also take on some PM work, help define a roadmap. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think as in startups, there's very, it's not very likely that they'll be hiring PMs at that stage, you know, maybe up until 20 employees even, but they probably got a data scientist and depending on what the product is and um, everyone has to share the PM's responsibility at that point. And I can definitely data scientists, you know, can they all, everyone has product sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, if every data scientist developed this product sense, are you afraid of, of losing your job? <laughs> well, that's the interesting bit. I think, you know, we talked about what the PMs actually do. So my job is sort of contingent on is everybody else being successful. And I think if, if everyone's, you know, crushing it and then, you know, I'll, then my job's doing, my job's doing well. Uh, I mean, I'm doing well at my job and you know, I think they say that like when when things are going right, everybody, you know, you need to give the credit to your team. And then when shit goes wrong, then it's the PM's fault. And I think that's OK, <laughs> kind of. And I think that's part of the job. Um, I think that maybe it's a good thing if I lose my job because everyone's kicking ass. But then. <laughs> um, OK, so then what is I don't think product manager will lose their job. That was more of a joke. Tried to see. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you think about the future of collaboration? So now with data science and learning more about product science and the product managers can use more advanced analytics tools. Uh, what, what do you think the future of the collaboration of product managers or data science, data scientists look like? Are they going to be um, um, merged into one role? I don't think so. I, I think it more specialization is actually more likely to be the case. Yeah. I think if there's 
there's just become more and more software and tools and processes and just best practices being instilled to ensure really good collaboration across teams and disciplines, especially now when people are so distributed. Uh, I think collaborating is like the most important thing ever. And when there's a lot of collaboration, I think it helps when people can also subspecialize. So then um, the future looks like PMs getting really, really good at customer research and the structure behind understanding the problem and that data scientists, well, being able to be able to have the, everyone speaking the same language and being able to have those conversations at that level, but then being able to do the right data science that maps to the to customer problem that we're solving. So I think it's both, hopefully everybody gets more collaborative across the tech world. Yeah. And then two people understand what the other is doing. Mm-hmm. And I think PM was, is PM and data scientists are probably the two most kind of recent types of things to yeah. roles to really become important over the last couple of years. And so I think the, the roles will evolve, but I think in a kind of a specialization sort of way. Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. So you have 10 years of experiencing product management. What is something about product management that most people believe in, but you don't? Well, I, you know, this might go against, what people might think, but a lot of a lot of folks believe that it's really important to pick the right tool. Like either I'm using Jira or Monday or I don't know, Hipmunk, whatever. Google Sheet. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and they spend so much time thinking about what's the right workflow for the team, and then nobody ends up using it anyway. So. I actually love Google Sheets, not because I think it's the best, but because it's just like it's basically a whiteboard and you can make it however you want. And like, obviously, it doesn't have these crazy, complicated interact in, in, in whatever interactions or integrations, which is what people go crazy for. But I'm just like, OK, I just update my status in my cell to like green to red or whatever. It's a whiteboard, essentially. And none of it matters. None of those tools matter at all as long as th- shit is getting done and people fuss over it too much you hear like i'm involved with a couple of communities and pretty much on like a weekly or even more frequent basis people are talking like oh what's best i'm trying to figure it out and it doesn't matter yeah um i can relate to that as a data scientist as well oftentimes people are so obsessed with the uh, state of the art the model forget about the problem you're trying to solve and Oh, I always advocate you can solve it with a simple solution like a linear regression. You don't have to solve it with a neural network. <laughs> um, so what is something that you used to have a lot of conviction in product management, but you don't believe in anymore? And what have you what made you change your mind? I was a huge proponent of North Star metric, and I still am. But I think we talked about it earlier where having fixating on one metric and never reevaluating it is it can be a recipe for disaster because even in theory i like the north star metric because hey it's our guiding light towards are we doing the right thing but i think it's fundamentally flawed in how people decide what those metrics are Mm -hmm. because if you don't you you could most of the time people will just pick something arbitrarily out of the hat or they'll pick a metric like engagement without really figuring out what does engagement mean? Like, what is it actually, how is it actually defined? Like, we want more people using our product every day. Okay, cool. So then 
help tell me what that looks like. And oftentimes it can be not just one metric, but a number of different ones, or the metric is too hard to move. An example of a metric that's hard to change is retention, which is just like after somebody uses the product for one day, do they come back mm. after a certain amount of time? And it's a difficult one to move without fun fundamentally changing a lot of the experience. And so it might not be the best North Star metric to use because things might be going well, but you're measuring it against something that's only moving very slightly. So um, I like North Star metric, but I think people just spend too little time thinking about what that actually means. Thanks for sharing that. And in your book, you didn't just write about how to develop product sense in your everyday work. You also share some tips for product sense interviews. Um, so what are some tips you can share with data scientists? Sure. Well, if you come up, I think data scientists now are getting product sense interviews sometimes. So yeah. <laughs> it's important to be able to know what they're looking for. It's if you, you know, for FANG companies, they'll, they'll typically ask one of three or four different categories of questions. One of them being set product sense, the other one being execution and the Typically, there's a there may be a strategy question. There might be a leadership question. So those are the four categories. Sense is the one that's, in my opinion, the most fun, but also the one that um, can be challenging if you don't know what to do. So I think that going into it, you want to be able to remember to apply structure. So what we were talking about earlier was how like defining the goals and success being like the first thing you do, that's part of structure. So yeah. they might ask you a question like, oh, like what would you change on Facebook groups to increase engagement? So it's a sense question because they're asking you what you would do differently or what like, what would you wanna build and why would you choose to build that thing for Facebook groups? But it can be anything. They might ask you, what is your favorite product? Why? Um, they might ask you, like, um, you know, like, well, you like users are getting lost on the homepage of Netflix and not ending up not getting there. Like, what would you add to Netflix to make people watch more videos or something mm -hmm. like that? So things that are asking you to make a propose a change to a product. And I think before it's such an ambiguous question that the structure that you apply to those questions is really what they're looking for. They don't care which answer you give most of the time they really want to know your thought process and how you decided to do that so first aligning the goals is always really good and then understanding the customer problems or pain points outlining what those might be the last you know last step being always the solution i think the other tip is to ask in probing questions to the interviewer so in these cases it's not like necessarily trying to do solve a problem but really engage the interviewer in a dialogue that helps dissect what the right thing is you know like show that you're engaging you'd be collaborative and then you can tease out more information from them if they want to offer it and then um, if you both you know you're doing it with your interviewer maybe on a whiteboard or something in zoom um, and then that collaboration really goes a long way in showing that like what kind of person you'd be when you're on the when they're on their team yeah so I have a product sense question here. Can I share that with you and you can show us how you would approach it? Sure. Uh, so there's a feature that increases overall session time by 5%. And it also increases YouTube page load time 5%. Would you launch the feature? This is an interesting question because it's asking you to evaluate a trade-off. So 
it sounded like the product was YouTube and on as a PM at YouTube and most likely running experiments to determine before determine the success of a feature before I roll it out to everybody. So it sounds like in this case, I am evaluating whether session time. So it sounded like that's a good metric. It's good that people are watching more stuff on YouTube in theory. It's good. And then, but there's a downside, which is that the load time for a page goes up as well. So it's 5% session time up and 5% load time up. So now as a PM and you're faced with this so many times on the job, like a trade-off, do I do X or Y, A or B, um, you know, one or two. So what you're being asked in this type of question is to really drill down more into what each of those metrics mean and outline essentially kind of a pros and cons list. But then what I think the interviewer was looking for in this case is, do you know, for example, YouTube or any kind of video streaming service, do you know what those met important metrics are to mm -hmm. look at um, to be able to answer this question? Because on the right. server, what is session time and load time, for example? Exactly. Yeah. What does session time even mean? Mm -hmm. So maybe like first thing that I would want to do is first you can pick one of those sides of those equations and say like what does session time mean? Does it mean um, like uh, are the people spending more time in a day? What are they doing in that session? Is it that they're watching more videos? Did they watch more of that specific video? Did they watch um, more of that specific channel? Which are are these good or bad things? It, is it good that the user is looking at? you know, multiple channels during their session where previously they were looking at fewer uh, channels. And then do those, if that's the case, say that user is now visiting, I don't know, two channels during their session versus one, is that correlated back to maybe another important metric, such as the North Star metric for retention or monetization? I would assume monetization is also impacted on this equation as well, because if you're watching for longer, you're probably running into more ads, so that you want to consider that in whether or not you launch the feature as well. You know, revenue being an important outcome. Now, on the other side of that equation, for load time, now that might cause people to bounce out of the page. They might just leave, and you know, if it's taking too long, they might you know just decide to quit their browser. So now we want to trade off whether or not is are there people being bounced out of the session, and is that negatively impacting long-term retention as well, because maybe short-term we're looking at longer session times, but long-term we're seeing like a drop in users. So we might be using, using losers, uh, <laughs> losing users over the longer term. So during an interview question, you'll, you'll want to probe and whether or not the interviewer is going to help facilitate and kind of point out some of these metrics for you. So you could ask like clarifying questions say like oh yeah is this length session length increase is that localized to just one specific region of the world or is it is it so one specific user group is it new users is it like users who've been around for a really long time because those are the types of analyses that you'd want to do to really uncover what the true trade-off is because at a high level it's two important metrics changing but what we need to know is what are the what's going on under, underneath that? And then in the interview, you might get some of those answers and then you can make a proposal in this in this example where we don't have any of those real numbers. We can only really kind of hypotheses what those important submetrics are. Yeah, um, I learned a lot during your explanation of 
how do you approach this question? So when you do interviews, what are some common mistakes people make when they answer product science questions? I think the number one mistake is probably jumping too fast to solutions. And that's and that will come a lot with people who haven't practiced a lot or read about PM interviews. But for example, and a tough one that pe mistake people make is that maybe you'll get this product sense question that's like, what's your favorite product and why? And people will be, oh, I love the iPhone because I use it every day. That's that's not a really great answer. It, you're, you are saying what your favorite product is and why, but you're not articulating really right. that kind of question you want to. You really want to say, first start with like a, a problem that you had and then the product that you were introduced by it, your experience and when using it, and then what you expect like other users or kind of metrics or like how you think Spotify is measuring success in that situation. And I said Spotify because that's my favorite product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I use that one a lot. So I, it, when, when someone's asking me that mm -hmm. question, I'll use Spotify Discover Weekly is my favorite feature. Mm -hmm. So I have that one rehearsed pretty well too. Nice. So you don't have to lie about it and find a good product just yeah. for the answer. <laughs> I do think it's really, I do really like my Spotify Discover uh -huh. Weekly. Yeah, cool. Um, so you, how long did it take for you to write a book? It took about a year and a little more. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote it with my colleague Braxton Bragg and it was really good to have him on board because without a co-author, I don't think, I would have ever finished it it's good to have that accountability buddy basically um but he and i had been doing some coaching for pms uh one of the things that pms like to do before interviews is practice with other people and if you didn't have it i had sort of a small coaching business where i'd help people prepare for the interviews and he was doing something similar and so we got together and decided to write a book we did it mostly during during 2020 so it was a covid project um, and during that time, there was a lot of life changes that happened for both of us. So I think it took a little bit longer, but we're happy with how it came out. And um, maybe a total was about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if uh, people want to get coaching from you, where can I um, find it? So I think if you go to productsensebook.com, you can reach out to us um, with questions or learn more about the book. And you can also see, um, ask us about coaching if, if that's something you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And what do you want people to take away from the book? Well, I think that one of the key things or pieces of feedback that we've gotten is that it's been really helpful for people to determine whether or not product management is right for them. Mm -hmm. And it was a, sort of an unintended result, but was really happy with it because it's a pretty good overview of what you need to know and how to get the job. And so for if you're even like kind of on the cusp of deciding whether or not you want to do it or not, it's product sense will help you figure that out. At least that's what our readers are saying. Um, so it's, it's nice. And I hope that if you're curious about it, that you learn, um, you know, practical advice on and, and firsthand accounts and what, you know, what it means to be a PM. Mm -hmm. um, so you spend a lot of time in the gaming industry. What are some typical data science problems um, in the gaming industry that you help solve? Sure, yeah. There's so much use for data science in games, it's crazy. One of the more common complications that happen is, well, it, we call it matchmaking. So if I'll give an example, League of Legends, which has got a, 
you know, millions of people playing every day and that it's trying to, a game consists of five people versus five people. And what you want, like, how do you know your matchmaking is doing well? Well, people are having fun. It's not fun if all the good people are on one team and all the bad people are on the other team. Yeah. And you have so many people and then when you queue up, you don't want to wait too long to find, to get matched with a group of 10. So how do you optimize that, right? Like, do you optimize it? You want to make sure that the teams are balanced, but you also don't want people to wait too long. And then maybe how do you know if somebody has made a new account and is actually really good, but this is their first game that you can see. And so how do you make sure that they get placed in a, you know, they get starting to get matched with similar skilled players. And how do you know when there's an anomaly where somebody's losing a lot when they're really not that bad. So there's a lot you can do with that. Um, at Unity, uh, there was a product that, it's a company that we acquired uh, at some point, and this, I don't no longer work at Unity, but they they acquired a company whose only job was to build matchmaking services. So games didn't have to think about that; they could just like use the matchmaking service that they offered, and um, that's because these problems are so complex. Um, mm -hmm. And so that sometimes it makes sense to just um, buy a solution rather than build it yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, what got you interested in game in a gaming industry? I really, I was a big, kind of a big gamer as a kid, and all my friends played games, so it became a passion. I think it definitely came down to the fact that most of my really good childhood friends I met from playing games. Uh, so I kind of got started there, and I got in. I first started at a company called Wizards of the Coast, which is makes Magic the Gathering, which was like a card game. You open packs of cards and you build a deck it's made of paper paper product basically and you play on a kitchen table and i got into digital product management i mean i knew once i did that it was super fun and i was a game designer and i knew i wanted to make my, my career in games and honestly being a product manager paid more money so <laughs> <laughs> uh, and being in digital the digital world was a lot of fun i got my internship at zynga um, and then i've just been in the industry ever since um, been in around a lot of different places i'm currently at ea so on stuff like fifa madden the sims i tried to get out of it at one point but you know I, it's it's just kept pulling me back in yeah so you said when you were a kid you're a big gamer um what were you like when you were a teenager <sighs> I, well, I was weird. I was like this weird hybrid of both a jock and a nerd at the same time. I think so. I was on the I was on the football team in high school, but then I would also spend my Friday nights playing, you know, magic in someone's basement and eating like pizzas and stuff with my other nerdy friends. Yeah. Um, so I don't think anyone really could figure me out. So <laughs> just because I didn't, I don't know if I hit. I was like a captain of the math team, but also played hockey. So it, I just did a lot of different stuff. Um, I went to, uh, I was born in Minnesota and it was, I was raised there. And so I was 18. Then I went to college on the East coast. And so, um, my, you know, Minnesota, I miss it. It has, but it's, it's super cold there. Now I live in San Francisco and uh, it's the same weather every day of the year. And I like this a little bit better, mostly also because I hated shoveling snow in Minnesota. That was my, my least favorite activity. Yeah. So I guess hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into who I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, um, going back to talk about your career, so what are some mistakes you made in your career, like especially early? Yeah, well, I think one thing I've, I've done a few times in my life, which is, and this is never, I guess this is neither good or bad, and I try not to hold any like regret in what I do, but um, I think 
I've left jobs maybe prematurely a little bit. So like my first at Zynga, I think at some point I got put on a project that I didn't like and I was maybe I had a manager I didn't like and I, I decided to, to leave and I tried to start my own gaming studio because, you know, that's what you do when you're 24. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work out. It lasted like six months. It was a terrible experience. Like starting companies is hard. And maybe if I stayed a little bit longer, I could have navigated my way around you know, Zynga a little bit longer, I might've learned more. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't regret it because it led me down the path that where I'm today and a lot of unique experiences came out of that. Um, so I think that's, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but I think that for me going forward now that maybe I'm more mature, maybe, but we'd try to solve problems rather than just escaping them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, what is some product mistakes you have made? Well, I think one thing is that's. I know everyone hates documentation, but I think the problem is that happens is when not everybody knows exactly what you're trying to build. Like it's so easy for a PM to have somebody be like have this vision in their head and assume everybody knows what you're talking about. I see that a lot in PMs. It happens a lot with executives. It happens with everybody. And I think good PMs can make it really clear on what you're building. I think I make mistakes when I don't doc. Maybe I don't want to say it's documenting enough. It doesn't have to be like a huge long product requirements document. It's just more like, can you align everybody? Do you is a document the right way to do it, or is, you know wireframe or whiteboard? But just making sure everybody's on the same page on what we're building and why we're building it. Yeah, um, I've made that mistake multiple times in the past. It's really easy because uh, to make it, and I think every PM makes those mistakes over the course of their career. Um, and I know for sure that that's happened to me before too. Yeah, um, I have made those mistakes as well. So thanks for sharing that. And uh, if you can talk to your younger self, especially when you just started working, what advice would you give him? I think making more mentors is always good because mm -hmm. it's one of those things that take forever to develop. Like I have like my current boss today, definitely somebody I met at Zynga. And I think that it's important to, you know, when you're young to try to establish those relationships with people who are who you want to be in 10 or 15 20 years yeah. and cultivate that over time because it's so easy also to it's up to you the mentee to make sure that relationship flourishes mm -hmm. and you can just not do that and then you're all that you know you'll potentially not be able to call on them for advice later on yeah. so i think i would tell myself to focus more on that mm -hmm. And you mentioned it's up to the mentee to make sure the relationship flourish. So um, as a mentee, what do you do? Well, I don't know if I'm the world's best person to ask about that because <laughs> I don't have too many and I wish that I had more. But um, I do have several and I think that it's what's just important to stay up to date with them. Like uh, uh, see if they're, well, first having, finding the mentors that have shown an interest to mentor you or yeah. take the time out of that and then to make the time really efficient so mm -hmm. coming with a problem to solve not just like shooting the shit or something like that but really being like hey i'm so i'm struggling with this thing can you give me your advice on how you do it and people love being asked opinions about specific situations yeah. they love giving advice mm -hmm. so if it's like that it's good meeting for coffee and catching up is great but i think you're not you're going to be not getting the most out of that relationship and then um, just making sure that it happens at a regular cadence, I think. This feels like the right way to go. Because you never really know when you know, like you're going to get that advice. But then at some point, that building that relationship will pay off in a big way. You never know when that's going to happen, but it almost always does. Yeah. 
And how did you find your mentors? Mostly, you know, at Zynga, I think I did spend a lot of time at Zynga trying to learn as much as I could have. I think my mistake was probably not keeping those relationships as cultivated as they could have been. But I think, you know, when I'm starting my career, I was really hungry at learning and um, talk to as many people as I could. And I had a lot more energy to do that kind of stuff when I was uh, 22. But I think early on in my career is when I met most people that I look up to. But also, you know, bosses that I had, even like at Unity, um, I stay, you know, I always looked up to them and try to stay in touch with them. so, and even your peers in the end of the day can serve as, serve as a mentor, people who are not way much older than you, but somebody you can use as a sounding board and potentially help each other out too. Those are just as important. And yeah. I've had so many friends that I've made, that I have today come from different companies that I've worked at. So when I do the research about you, I found that you wrote a book before. Oh, yeah. Um, and you seem to be a pioneer in remote remote work. Um, you wrote a book called Digital Nomads Survival Guide in 2017. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the experience? Sure. Yeah, that was okay. So when after I tried to start my own company, which I talked about, uh, I went like I had uh, a crisis because I really wanted that company to succeed and I had no idea what I was doing and it failed. Right. So I started consulting or doing freelance work. And um, I realized that I was at my expensive house in San Francisco. I was working remotely. And this was like 2015, so before all of this became really big. And um, I decided to do kind of a working remotely while traveling type of thing. And I guess people call it digital nomad lifestyle. And I did that for two years. Uh, I, left, I left San Francisco, left the country, traveled and worked and worked on client projects and met a lot of people. And uh, I wanted to write a book with someone else who was doing that, and uh, we partnered and finished a book uh, while we were in Thailand. So it was it was a cool experience. It's definitely been helpful. People have reached out and said that it's it's a book about not necessarily how to think and change your like you know if you like how you can rethink differently and do this if you want to. It's if you've already decided that you want to travel and work at the same time. It's it's sort of logistics help, which I we didn't have when we started. And it's definitely become more popular now. I think the book, even though it's almost almost five years old at yeah. this point, the sales have continued to climb up because more people are traveling and working remotely. I mean, obviously there was a huge dip in COVID, but actually I think it because of the how much more popular working remotely is, more people are considering being location independent. And so that was why we wrote the book. It's not nearly as polished as Product Sense, the first book, but... Uh, totally different genre too, but I don't, every five years, I guess I write a book. I don't know what the next one will be, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) maybe something completely different. Uh So if you can give one tip um, for people who want to have this digital nomads lifestyle, what would that be? Well, I think making sure that it's definitely not as cheap as people think it is Mm -hmm. because, oh, the idea is that you can give up your expensive Bay Area apartment and then live in Thailand where it's really cheap. Well, that's true, but it's, it costs that up. And I think the hardest part for somebody is just getting that uh, getting that revenue stream up. And so now if you have a full-time job that allows you to work remotely, that's great. But the thing you have to worry about, especially if you're going to Thailand, is that the hours are really bad. I think that was the biggest one of the biggest struggles that I had, especially being in Asia, was just working trying to work West Coast hours while being in Bali. Yeah. It was too hard. Mm-hmm. You're either starting at midnight or 
waking up at 3 a.m. It's it was a challenge, and so I was lucky enough where my were client projects where I didn't have to be on all the time. I just had to you know finish some work, but I knew some people who were doing that kind of off third shift almost, and that that was a challenge. So there are a lot of hiccups. It's not all it's not all beaches and mai tais and stuff. <laughs> it's it's it, it, there are its own set of challenges, and it's it's really it can be really rewarding, but also there's you know can be draining in some ways. Yeah, uh, I never thought of that. Um, so you did a digital nomad because you wanted to start a game studio. Um, do you still want to start a game studio in the future? Well, if there's anything I learned from that experience is that it's super difficult to do that. Um, so <laughs> no plans right now. Uh, but you know, I I do love the gaming space, and if if something opportunity strikes, I'm open to it. But right now, I'm I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, and I think I'm prioritizing different things like stability and things like that. And yeah. Working on passion projects like I can, and I think entrepreneurship might strike me again, but it's not currently on my radar.、Mm-hmm. What are some passion projects you're working on? Well, after the book release, which was a couple months ago now in July, I've been struggling to figure out what the next thing is. Taking a little bit of a break, but、um, maybe thinking about a video course,、um, maybe、uh, on product management. Yeah, yeah, trying to. I think I wanted to maybe work on something because the first the book is about giving people that job. I'm wondering if there's something an opportunity to help people once they get that job for the first time and want to、yeah. know want to know what to do、mm-hmm. for the first ninety days. That's just an idea I've been incubating, but hopefully, I'll maybe do some customer research and see if people would buy it. <laughs> Collect <laughs>、yeah. some data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love the idea because there are a lot of resources teach us. How do you prepare for interviews in school?、Uh, those concepts, but there's a big gap between those theories and your day-to-day work.、Right. So I think that would be very useful. Yeah. Well, that's something I'm 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 trying to validate. Yeah.、Um, before we wrap up, what is something in your life or in your career you're excited about right now? Well, I've been the gym started opening up again. I feel comfortable to go. I, I'm just actually pretty excited to.、Uh, I, Get it back into the pool, and then also using the sauna and stuff like that. I, it just feels like life is getting back to normal. I'm sure that's what everybody's saying, but definitely was the COVID was challenging for me, just like everybody else. And、uh, happy that things are kind of slowly getting back to the way they were. Yeah,、um, same. So,、um, if people want to find you and connect with you, where can they find you on the internet? You can reach out to me via the contact form from the book website, productsensebook.com. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn,、um, so you can s- send me a message there if you'd like. Cool. Anything else you want to share with our audience? No.、Uh, thank you for having me. This was a really fun conversation, and I、uh, appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Thanks for coming to the show, and、uh, very excited to read your book. And maybe one day we'll play a game you designed. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.